Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello, folks. Uh, welcome to Season 3 of uh, Wisdom of Friends. I'm your host, Galaros. And today, I'm really excited to be introducing you to uh, the best-selling author, Margaret Mizushima, who's written the Timber Creek Canine Mystery Series, which includes the Killing Trail and RT Reviewer's Choice Award nominee for the first Best Mystery Stalking Ground, which was a second book, a Colorado Book Award, an International Book Award finalist, and our most recent book, Hunting Hour, an RT Book Review's top pick. Now, Margaret has a background in speech pathology, and she has practiced in an acute care hospital before establishing her own rehab agency, which specializes in services for children and adults with developmental delay and acquired neurological disorders. Currently, she balances writing with assisting her husband with their veterinary clinic in Angus Carroll Heard. This is really a fascinating conversation, friends, uh, where we talk about uh, how Margaret identified her passion and uh, the challenges she encountered along the way and how did she find her calling for writing. This episode has got a lot of golden nuggets that I hope uh, you enjoyed as much as I did. So please pull up a chair and listen in. And without further ado, let's welcome the one and only Margaret Mizushima. So good afternoon, uh, Margaret. Uh, Welcome to the Wisdom of Friends show. I'm really excited that you took some time to be on this program. And let me start off by saying how we got introduced uh, through our mutual friend, uh, Terry Wolf, who also happens to be uh, one of our uh, common book agents. I uh, She uh, had indulged in her uh, AKA Literary Services uh, almost a few years ago when I had published my book. And uh, and she's an amazing uh, agent as well. And then she was uh, the one who introduced us. And when I looked at your profile and what you've done with your life and the three books that you published, it is so fascinating that I knew right away that it would be great to have you on the show and uh, have you share some of the insights with our audience. So again, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your words and I appreciate being here. It's been great to meet you through Terry. Terry happens to be my agent. So it's been great to be able to get to know you a little bit better. Thank you for having me as a guest on your show. Excellent. And uh, one of the ways, Margaret, we start off our show is with a very simple but profound question for our guest, and that is, what is your favorite quote or philosophy that you live by, and how have you applied it to your life? My favorite quote was given to me by a friend way back in 1987. At that time, I was leaving my position at the hospital where I worked as a speech pathologist, and I was getting ready to start my own company. And this quote says, whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Begin it now. And that is a quote from Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. And I I have carried this quote in my wallet now for over 30 years. It's very important to me. And I think that that is what has inspired me to go ahead and follow different dreams as I go through life. That is uh, really uh, amazing. And I, I, I've heard that quote before, and it's also one of my favorites. And I think uh, the couple of elements in that quote, it's like there is power to start uh, to begin to get started on any project or endeavor that we uh, want to uh, we are conceptualizing or envisioning. So there's a power to starting it. And secondly, I think the beauty of that quote as well is that once you begin, the universe conspires to help you in your 
process of achieving your dreams. And I think uh, those are uh, two elements that have always resonated with me. And it's, I totally uh, like that quote. That's awesome. Uh, yes. My next question to you is, and I'm really curious about your childhood. So what was, uh, what did your parents do and uh, how did that shape your life? My parents made a living in agriculture. Now, my mother was a registered nurse, but she didn't work outside of our home uh, when I was a young child. She started working outside of our home as a school nurse when I was a teenager. Uh, I was the youngest in our family. I have a brother and a sister. The brother is the oldest. And um, so we always lived in the country. Uh, my father was a herdsman on a cattle ranch in Hereford, near Hereford, Texas. My father was always one of those people that was kind of considered a leader in his community as far as his beliefs about the cattle industry and raising cattle. He was very much into genetics and bloodlines, even prior to that being a very special and popular thing that is done today. Uh, so I think that really inspired me as I watched my dad uh, constantly wanting to, to make his herd of cattle better, constantly wanting to make their health better, um, improving their living conditions. And he was just uh, animal husbandry was was his thing, taking care of animals. So that was that was pretty much how I grew up. I lived on a cattle ranch and I attended a very small country school where there were eight grades and four teachers. Each teacher had a classroom with two grades in it. So it, it was very small, very uh a lot of a lot of fun we kids had at recess out there in the country. <laughs> no, that's so great. And uh, for the benefit of the audience, uh, Margaret uh, Mizushima, she's the best-selling author of the Timber Creek uh, Canine Mystery Series, and uh, which has won many awards for her books. Uh, the first book was. Uh, called The Killing Trail, which was uh, published in 2015 and was nominated by the RT uh, Reviewer's Choice Award. And then the second book was The Stalking Ground, which was published in 2016 by Crooked Lane, and then uh, which was the finalist in the 2017 Colorado Book Awards. And, uh, and her most recent book is The Hunting Hour, uh, called The Crooked, again by Crooked Lane in 2017. And... Uh, what I want to, Margaret, I'm curious about is you have such an incredible journey, which began uh, as uh, as a speech language therapist. And I was reading to your profile and I remember uh, somewhere in there you had mentioned about volunteering to work with a child who had cerebral palsy. And that experience really uh, led you to uh, pursue your school uh, in the speech-language uh, pathology. So could you tell us a little bit about that as to how that journey began? By the time I was in high school, we my family had moved to Colorado, and I was attending a small consolidated high school in Sawatch, Colorado. We had a speech therapist who would come to our high school about once a month, um, and she... she uh, went from school to school in a large vicinity. So she she didn't stay at just one school. We had this five-year-old in our community who had cerebral palsy and was unable to speak. So she set up a program for me as a senior in high school to follow. And this child would come in and I would get to work with him about three times a week on the language lessons that she would set up. This was very inspiring to me because this child had so much intelligence locked inside his body. And if you worked with him with his receptive language or what he understood, you could see just how much he knew what he had taken in with life. But he didn't have a way to express himself. I was working on a communication system that could eventually be computerized. Uh, 
But as a five-year-old, we were working primarily with picture identification and him using pictures to express his needs. That opened up a whole new world for him. And as an adult, he is uh, very uh, progressive in the use of technology to communicate with. So I like to believe that maybe I had a very small part in building that foundation for him. But that's what inspired me to go ahead and become a speech therapist as I went on to college. That's what I studied in school. Yeah, no, that's great. So you went to Colorado State University, and then from that point on, uh, you uh, became a speech therapist, and then uh, eventually you started your own rehab agency. And uh, I, at some point, uh, you start sold your company and you started the art and craft of fiction writing. That's where uh, your journey as a writer began. So, you know, one of the questions we often get from our audience, and it seems like uh, you have found your passion and your calling in multiple domains, uh, helping people in uh, with the speech uh, therapy as well as like now as a writer. So the question is really how how do you know that you find your passion that you're that you're meant to do something and how does one go about finding their calling what would you say were some of your triggers in identifying your your calling I think that it's difficult for a a teenager sometimes to find their calling and sometimes it just takes a little bit more experience and a variety of things to find it. I've always recommended career counseling to people. I think it can be a great help in finding your calling. Uh, another, another thing that I've done myself is used some of the books like the artist way uh, written by Julia Cameron to try to discover what it is that really um, helps me find my bliss, what it is that helps me reach that part when I'm working on a project where I totally lose track of time and I'm able to just kind of go with the flow from the universe as, as it comes into me. Those kinds of things are what I have looked for in the past. What is it that I really enjoy and what inspires me? When I was becoming a speech therapist, it was the people. It was the people I worked with, my clients. They had so much to communicate, and that was what I wanted to help them do was to be able to communicate. So in becoming a writer, I think that I've been able to then take that verbal communication just on into writing. And, of course, I worked with many, many people who had had strokes or head injuries who were learning to write again in their lives. But uh, fiction writing is a whole different ballgame. Um, and the first time I started writing fiction, I did completely lose myself in time and in the flow. It was almost like I was just channeling somebody else's voices coming in and writing down what they were saying. There was a movie in my head playing. So those kinds of things just really motivated me to continue on that path and really learn about the craft of writing rather than just enjoying that flow. It's almost like the more you learn about something, the harder it is to do. <laughs> because in the beginning, that flow just kind of keeps you going. No, that is so great. You mentioned that uh, about, you know, having that process of channeling uh, while you're writing. And I think uh, we'll get to that here shortly. And uh, that's such a incredible uh, sharing that you uh, just uh, talked about here. Uh, because, you know, it's oftentimes you have to try different things to really uh, see what resonates with you. And and some of the few fortunate ones, they do find it early on. But oftentimes, as you said, having a career counselor can give us that additional perspective that a teenager or a young adult may not have as to what options are available for them. Now, that is so great. And uh, my next question to you, Margaret, is... Uh, 
you know, we've had uh, many successful people here on the show, and one of the common through lines, if you will, or the uh, or the challenges that they have faced along the way, it seems like a lot of people would have seen that as a setback or a failure. But oftentimes, these people, these highly successful people, had a different perspective of what these setbacks and challenges were, because they used that as a platform, as a stepping stone to take on even bigger challenges. So my question to you is, what were one or two biggest challenges that you faced in your life and how did you overcome it? Or what lessons uh, did those challenges provide you that helped you navigate life going forward? I do think that the challenges kind of fall into two different categories. One is external circumstances that might happen to you over which you have no control whatsoever. The other one is internal things that you do have some control over, and those can be as big as, if not bigger, challenges in our life. One of the external circumstances that sent me from being a speech therapist in a hospital setting, earning a nice salary, and having pretty much whatever hours I wanted to work um, and the flexibility of that, uh, it sent me into owning my own company, which was uh, probably one of the most huge challenges I've ever tackled. What happened, external circumstances that happened, was that I was downsized. I was part of one of those corporate downsizings. And I lost my job as a department head and became a supervisor. And the department head that they were bringing in was a physician who they were saying would, we were being told that he would be more or less the figurehead and we would still be doing our same jobs, but we would no longer have the authority or the decision-making ability in our particular departments. So, Because of that, all three of us who were the OT, PT, and speech therapists decided to leave that hospital setting, and I decided to go out and form my own company. It was the biggest challenge I ever faced, and I was kind of reeling because I had always believed that this corporation really supported me as a person. Uh, the corporation had changed management and therefore management styles. And it was kind of like a rude awakening to me. So there were some emotional disturbances that were going on at the same time. I did go ahead, start the company. And thankfully, I was able to connect within 12 to 18 months with some really good, like-minded people who I was able to bring into the company, and we just expanded from there. Um, But that was probably one of the biggest hurdles I ever faced, uh, as far as one that happened from external circumstances. Now, that is a phenomenal example, and I think... Uh, we can all learn from this experience is that oftentimes, uh, you know, when uh, setbacks happen or the challenges happen in terms of uh, restructuring of a job or getting fired or, you know, sometimes that gives us the freedom to explore opportunities and take on bigger challenges. And I think in your case, uh, you chose to get into this unfamiliar territory or the unknown, if you will, of starting your own business and uh, and really after a while expanding and becoming successful at it. So what was that experience like for you, like from going from working for a corporation and as a department head and then moving into starting your own practice? Was that uh, an easy transition for you? What were some of the Uh, challenges that you encountered as far as uh, getting your uh, clients and setting up the business and promoting it? Uh, What was that experience like for you and what did you learn from that? It was probably something that I wasn't prepared for as far as the amount of hours per week that I would need to dedicate to setting up all of the systems within my company. Uh, 
and to get all of the certifications. I was Medicaid certified and Medicare certified. Those types of things just take months in order to accomplish those kind of certifications and therefore being able to be a biller into those particular income streams. The other thing was just dealing with multiple insurance companies and what that takes. So I I didn't really realize how much time it would take when I went out on my own and before I could hire I could afford to hire people to come in and help me. Um, many people do start with some kind of financial backing, but I wasn't one of those. I had to pretty much just start on a shoestring and do it all myself. Luckily, I was prepared for a lot of the business management uh, part of it because I had had that kind of training when I worked in the corporation, and they had done quite a bit of middle management training. But I did need to go out then and network with other businesses, set up contracts with other businesses. For example, we did home health care contracts and we did nursing home contracts to provide occupational and speech therapies uh, on at those sites as well as in my own clinic. So we were able to go ahead and kind of expand with the help and support of other companies as we expanded the services we uh, offered on an outpatient basis to other people. There were many physicians in the community who supported my effort to go out and and have a business on my own. And so many physicians would refer to our, our company and helped us grow. So I'm very grateful to all that support. Well, that is so great, and I, I kudos to you for being able to like uh, step outside your comfort zone, and then, you know, reaching out to the network and the community, and then slowly and steadily, uh, you know, with no financial backing, to really, uh, uh, you know, working your way through all of those financial challenges and setting up a successful business because that's not an easy thing to do, and I really uh, acknowledge you for having uh, taken that risk and. I'm sure uh, you've done a lot of good with uh, your business. Now, you also referred to uh, the internal challenge. Uh, do you have an example that you would like to share uh, with our audience? One of the internal challenges that I believe is common for people that are in creative uh, professions like writing is self-doubt. And I think that self-doubt can probably infringe upon the energy and the ability to trust oneself in any profession. But when you're in a creative profession, you are often judged very much by others. And so self-doubt creeps in. And that is something that I believe you really must reach out to the support of others when that happens and find those people who get you and, and get what you're trying to do with your art or with your creativity and find those people who can really support you and who can tell you you're on the right track and those people who can and give you kudos when maybe somebody else in the world is not doing that for you. You do really have to develop a tough skin. And I'm a pretty thin skinned person. So that has been a struggle for me as I go from actually being more of a businesswoman to being a creative professional. Wow. No, that is, I think uh, what you just shared here is just uh, brilliant because I think, uh, you know, not all of us are immune to criticism or able to handle criticism well. And it's, I think, as a creative artist, uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, there is a sensitivity factor that comes into play. And, uh, and you know, we are our hardest critics, but then having that kind of feedback from an external source can be disappointing and demoralizing as well. But able to, like, bounce back, uh, and also, as you said, surrounding yourself with people that have 
uh, can instill that belief in you that uh, and keep her motivating you so that you can continue on your journey of the creative arts. I think that's such a big uh, point right there. And um, so I'm going to take a step back the memory lane here. Uh, so, Margaret, uh, what was... Uh, who were your mentors growing up and whom did you idolize or that you looked up to that you wanted to emulate growing up or were there any particular people in your life that you want to kind of give a shout out to uh, that has played a big role in your uh, career or in your life? There were several along the way. My parents probably influenced me the most in my early years because living in the country, um, they were the biggest influence to me. Our school was fairly small, and even though I really liked my teachers, there didn't seem to be one that stood out particularly as a mentor. I, As I got um, into my first job, though, there was a physical therapist who had become the department head of rehabilitation who hired me into my first position in a hospital setting, and her name was is Ellen Conley. And Ellen was probably one of my biggest mentors early in my career. What I really respected about her was that she went beyond what she had learned in college and had taught herself many of the skills that she needed to manage a department and to manage the business aspects of the department. Systems, business systems within a hospital change constantly. And so it is a constant challenge to keep up with that. And even as she became older, she was always right there at the front line, uh, learning new things and uh, giving her input into better systems. And she was always one of my biggest fans. And she helped my department grow, my speech therapy department grow, and gave me lots of support. So she was probably most instrumental in helping me get started with my speech therapy career. No, that is so great. And uh, so growing up, did you have any uh, favorite hobbies and interests? And are you still pursuing those? Or I think one of my favorite interests in life was reading. I can remember sitting in the crotch of a tree, sitting there reading a book during the summertime. That was one thing that my mother negotiated with the local librarian the library was about 30 miles away, and we didn't get in from the ranch very often. So the librarian allowed my mother to let us check out just any number of books we wanted to. She didn't hold us to the limitations or the rules. And then she also gave us extra time for our checkouts. So we constantly had books in the home. And that was one of my favorite hobbies that carries forward today. When I'm writing a book, it is hard for me to keep up with my reading. And so I crave it during those four and a half to five months that I'm writing my first draft. And when I get to the point where I'm revising my first draft, I'm just like, oh, thank goodness. Now I can read again. It's uh, it's one of the things that I still love to do. And another hobby that I grew up loving was hiking in the mountains and exploring what I could find in the different places in the mountains. And that's something I still love to do today, too. And that is great. Now, talking about books, uh, are there any of your favorite books that you've read or reread over the years or you have gifted it to other people? Yes. I mentioned the the one earlier, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. That's a real favorite book that I like to recommend to people who are looking for um, what it is they want in their creative self and discovering what it is they really want to do in their life, either for a vocation or an avocation. And then another one is Your Heart's Desire by Sonia Choquette. I just love this book. It has different chapters with different instructions and and things that you can do um, in journaling and things like that to discover yourself and what it is that you really want 
to do in life. And then one book that I've given my children and that I read over and over and I refer back to quite often is a book by Lama Surya Das, and it's called Eight Steps to Enlightenment, Awaking the Buddha Within, Tibetan Wisdom for the Western World. And I just really love that book. I think that the ethics of uh, Buddhism is something that we can really bring into our Western religions, and I think the world would be better off. Now, that is so great, and uh, we'll include all those titles uh, in our show notes, and uh, and then definitely I'm a big fan of the morning pages, uh, the one that, that you referenced earlier. It's just, oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. And that's... way, yes. Uh, great, excellent. And then I also noticed that uh, you also practice yoga, is that correct? Yes, I do. I used to belong to yoga gra- groups and practice regularly. Uh, that's something else that's kind of fallen by the wayside because my husband and I do live in the country. So I have not gotten back into a group, but I do practice that on my own. No, that's uh, that's really uh, fantastic. And then uh, uh, you did grow up in Kansas, and then uh, you've always uh, lived on ranches and cattle ranches in Texas and Colorado now. And uh, so you also herd cattle. Is that true? That's right. My husband and I have a registered Angus cattle herd. And the genetics that my dad used to tell me about at the kitchen table, uh, things like uh, being able to clone an animal, the things that Dad just talked about 30 years, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, that had not come to be yet. Um, things like being able to have one cow that would be a super cow or the best genetic profile in a certain breed And that cow could be super ovulated so that you could get many babies from her in one year instead of just one baby. My dad talked about that before it even occurred, before Mm -hmm. the science was even there. So uh, these are all things that my husband and I have been able – we we have never cloned an animal, but we we have had – super cows that we super ovulate and have more than one baby from. And we've done those kinds of things to improve our Angus cattle herd. And so, yeah, I think of my dad a lot. My dad did die early of a heart attack. And so he never did see that Charlie and I got very involved with cattle work after he was gone. But maybe he does on some level. Yeah, now that is really uh, fascinating that he was able to predict that or see that as a as a vision in the future that that's a possibility, and now you actually are able to do it. So that's really uh, incredible. Uh, yes. so, so, Margaret, my next question to you is: uh, having having been in this profession as a, <clears throat> as a speech pathologist and then as a writer and now, what would you say at this point in your life is your definition of success, and how would you define greatness? One of the things that I think must be required in the definition of success is being able to achieve balance in life. I think there is a balance between work and leisure time that's very difficult to find sometimes. And I've been the most guilty of having work consume my life at different parts of my life. But I think that success is when you've reached that balance where you have just enough that you can live comfortably and that you can have those things that you need to be secure and safe in your environment and to put food on the table for your family and still be able to carve out that time that you can share time with your children, share time with your loved ones and your friends, and be able to have leisure activities that kind of fill your well or put your energy back in your systems and so that you can continue on with your work. 
So I, I believe that balance has to be in that definition of success. Uh, that's great. As, yeah, go ahead. As far as defining greatness, I, I'm not quite sure how to answer that question. But when I think of great people, I think of people like Martin Luther King and of people like Helen Keller. And I think that it has to do with overcoming external circumstances um, and being able to sacrifice oneself for the good of others and those kinds of things. I think that has to be built into greatness in people. I, I like that, and I think uh, you're absolutely right. I think examples that you just gave about Dr. King and Helen Keller and Mother Teresa and who have dedicated their lives for a cause that is bigger than themselves, and uh, that is definitely uh uh, indeed, uh, an example of what greatness uh, is. And uh, I like, really like your definition of success. It's like having that contentment factor. It's about, you know, when you are able to put food on the table and able to like make a living and then uh, able to share time with your loved ones and uh, do the things that fill you well, as you said. I think that is really uh, living a successful life, and as the Stoics used to say, having a good life and uh, without the excesses. And no, that's uh, that's so great. Um, moving on to our next section, and I want to kind of get into your writing practice a little bit here. And uh, I know that you've written and published uh, three books. Uh, the first one being uh, Killing Trail, the second one, The Stalking Ground, and uh, the third one, which uh, which was recently published was the hunting hour and all of them are based out of timber creek uh, canine mystery uh, series genre and it uh, revolves around uh, three characters uh, apparently it's uh, one is uh, obviously uh, uh uh, Deputy um, uh, Matty Cobb and then the canine partner Robo and then uh, uh, Cole uh, Walker is the third character and so they all revolve around a specific set of mystery thrillers and the murder mysteries and and it's fascinating based on the reviews that I've read so I want to kind of get into that a little bit here but my first question to you is Margaret, do you you mentioned earlier about the eight steps to enlightenment was one of the books that fascinate fascinated you in your own life. So my question to you is, do you view writing as kind of a spiritual practice? Yes, I do. When I first began to write fiction, that was my first experience in becoming totally lost in this vision in my head and being able to write it down. And it was a spiritual experience to me at that time. I felt almost like I was channeling somebody else's words. I typically light a candle before I sit down to write um, or I turn on my salt lamp, or sometimes I have a little fountain that I listen to while I write. Um, and I just try to tap into that um, each time. I don't always make it. And like I was said earlier, it seems like the more you learn about the how-tos of a craft, sometimes the harder it is. And so as I've been writing more and more and working under deadline more and more, which was an experience I didn't have with Killing Trail, I always laugh because it took me about six years to write and revise and re-revise Killing Trail, whereas Stalking Ground and Hunting Hour, I had about six months months to be able to put together that manuscript. So I had to learn a new way to write and to write faster. So even though it's a spiritual practice for me, I always say you can't just sit around and wait for your muse to come to you. You just have to sit down at that computer and do the work. And for me, it's best if I have a set time that I sit down every morning and start the work, and lo and behold, that muse just might show up, and it might turn into one of those magical days. But 
If it doesn't, I still have to put those words on the paper because then I'll have nothing to revise if I don't at least have that first draft. So it, it's a mixture at this stage. No, that is so great. And, and one of the books that I've uh, been recommended by some of my friends uh, is the book by Stephen Pressfield. The, I think the book is called The War of Art, where you know he distinguishes between the amateurs and professionals. The professionals are the ones, no matter what time of the day or what day it is, they actually make time to sit down and write. And uh, as just as you said, you know, not wait for the muse to show up to begin writing. And that's what makes them a professional. And no, that is so great. And so my next question to you is, uh, and this is uh, regarding uh, the book reviews. I know oftentimes, uh, you know, when we start writing and uh, publishing our books, we get book reviews and book reviews can be sometimes harsh. Sometimes they can be really, uh, uh, really good. So do you read your book reviews and if you how do you deal with good and bad ones? I do read my book reviews. Uh, fortunately for me, the industry reviews, those reviews done by Kirkus and Publishers Weekly and Library Journal have been positive and those reviews are the ones that I kind of take in and say, now these are the people in the industry who really like my books. And thank you for that. And thank you, universe, for that. And then as you get on to Goodreads and you get on to Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com and, and the different online booksellers, they always have the place where either professional reviewers or readers who are out there reading books because they love books, who they voice their opinions. And these are places where you might not get a positive review every time. And so, yes, I read my reviews. And when I hit upon one of those, that's not positive. I try to see if they, there's something from that review that I can glean that would improve my work the next time. But if there's not, I do try to just forget about it and let it go. Because sometimes in art, not everybody's going to like your work. Not everybody's going to like what they see. For example, if you're a painter, um, and not everybody's going to like a book that you've written. So you have to just take it in. If there's something you can... Um, improve upon, you do it, but if there's not, you just have to move on. No, that is so great. So I, I totally like that. It's a, it's the ability to, uh, as I think Aristotle said, it's the mark of an intelligent mind to be able to hold two conflicting thoughts uh, simultaneously without necessarily agreeing with uh, each of them. And I think it's the ability to view criticisms as a source of uh, feedback and kind of see if there is any value in the feedback that we are getting that we can improve on. And I think that's such a great uh, perspective to have. Uh, my next question to you is, now you have three phenomenal, very popular characters in all your books, and that is uh, Deputy uh, Maddie Cobb and then the canine uh, Robo and then, of course, uh, Cole Walker. Now, how... So my question is, uh, how do you select the name of your characters? Is that something that uh, that comes to you, as you said earlier, channeling or, or really? I mean, what's, how do you go about establishing these characters? What's your process like? The, the, um, we'll start with Cole Walker. He's the veterinarian in the book, and we get to see him work quite a bit with animals. Um, my husband happens to be a veterinarian. I've been married to him for 35 years, and so I've been exposed to watching him do veterinary work time after time, even though I didn't work in his clinic. I'm often the one he calls in when he doesn't have an assistant after hours, so i have been a part of that practice um, for all these years. And so that came real easy to me. I wanted to name him Cole Walker because I wanted a name that kind of sounded Western. 
since these books are set in Colorado. And Cole is kind of has a Western flavor to his character. So that's how Cole got his name. I um, fashioned Cole Walker after uh, my husband in some ways, in some ways not at all. But the way he works his practice and the way he handles animals, I have definitely been able to glean that part of his character from my husband. Now, when we go to Maddie Cobb, Maddie's name came about because I went to high school with a girl named Maddie, M-A-T-T-I-E, and I really loved that name. So I just decided to to home in on Maddie, and I knew from the get-go that that would be her name. I'd always wanted to put a veterinarian in a book, and when I decided to write a mystery series, I thought, well, you know, a vet that contributes to solving mysteries that might have crimes against animals, might not, might just be crimes against people in his community. I really liked that idea. And then I thought, well, he has to have a crime-solving partner. And what better than a female protagonist so that we could have a little bit of a love interest there and then have that female be a canine handler so that there's the dog involved. And so Deputy Maddie Cobb came to my mind. I really don't know how I chose the last name Cobb for her. I just wanted a one-syllable name that kind of had some punch. And so I think that's how I came up with Cobb. Um, Maddie Cobb has quite a bit of baggage in her character. She is a sheriff's deputy in a rural community, and she is has the first canine unit and Robo has been, Robo is the dog character, and I'll tell you in a minute how I came up with that name. But Maddie has been charged with keeping the community safe from drug traffic. And the merchants and ranchers and people of Timber Creek, which is a fictional town in Colorado, by the way, they have purchased Robo for their community because they all want their community to say, stay safe from drugs. So the way I came up with the name Robo for the dog is that I have a friend who retired as a canine handler from Bellingham, Washington, and her dog that she managed out in Washington was named Robo. And so she has told me story after story after story about her dog's prowess and how he won many, many awards in patrol dog trials that they have in police departments and how he was just the most well-trained dog she'd ever seen on the force. And so even though Robo had died of old age by the time my friend and I met each other, um, at least I was able to benefit from all of the stories, even though I didn't get a chance to meet him. So I asked my friend if I could use his name as the uh, name of the dog in my story, and she said I could. So that's how Robo got his name. That's so great. So fascinating. Uh, So typically you said it takes – how long on an average does it take uh, for you to write a book now? Is it – has it been easier after having published the first book, The Killing uh, Trail? Yes, I'm kind of into the schedule of it now. And and uh, so I usually try to deliver a manuscript by sometime in early October. And we're on a, a one book each year schedule. So once they take my manuscript, which I've usually started by March 1st, so I I take around, I would say, five months to write a 90 to 95,000 word first draft. And then I take the remainder of my time to revise that draft, and then I turn it into my editor. And at that point, we need to work on it for about three more months to get three more revisions of that book. 
they do the developmental edit, the line edit, and the copy edit. And so the whole process does take right around nine months to give birth to a book. And um, so that's about the schedule we're on. And now that I've learned how to outline a little bit better, I can keep to that schedule. That's great. Um, moving on to uh, some of the questions that uh, we have received from our audience. And this is uh, the first question, Margaret, I have for you is, uh, what, in your opinion, stops people from achieving their full potential? I think there are perhaps circumstances that people cannot rise above that um, inhibit their ability to rise to their full attention, uh, potential. I think that exists in this world. Um, with help, I think that people can go ahead and rise above those circumstances at times. But the most deadly circumstance is probably not believing in yourself. I think if there's one thing I would tell people is to believe in themselves and to believe that the universe does want them to succeed. And no matter how small a step they need to take, that first step can be terrifically small. But at least take that first step towards a goal or a dream. And they might be surprised at the people and the things that happen that come forth to help them achieve what they want in their lives. No, that is so great. And I think, uh, I think it was, uh, Albert, uh, Einstein who had said that the most important question that a human being can ask himself or herself is, is the universe working on your behalf or is it working against you? And I think, as you said, the universe is always, uh, you know, wanting you to succeed and then to take those small steps. As Lao Tzu said, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Uh, so that is so great. It's a great reminder. The next question is, uh, if you could go back in time, Margaret, and talk to your young self, your 20-year or a 25-year-old self, what advice would you give her? I had um, an occurrence. One of those things that happens externally happened to me when I was 25, and that was that I lost my first husband in an accident. And we had an eight-and-a-half-month-old baby at the time. And one of the words of advice that was given to me at that time that has resounded with me for the rest of my life is that things will improve. When you are at your darkest days and your darkest hour, know that things are going to get better. Sometimes they may get a little worse before they get better, but they will improve. So I think that's one thing I would tell myself or another young person who's facing some dark times is that things will get better. Believe in yourself. Take those first steps toward what it is you want as you're rebuilding your life. When your dreams get shattered by things that are outside of your control, believe that you can turn things around and things will get better. Wow, that is uh, such an inspiring message there. And uh, I'm sure the audience uh, will greatly benefit from this uh, uh, words of wisdom here. I really like it. It's about believe in yourself. Things will get better and take those uh, small steps towards your goals. Uh, moving on to our next section, uh, Margaret. This is the rapid uh, fire round. And here where I'm going to ask you a bunch of uh, fun questions. And it is the first thing that comes to your mind uh, or your first response. And of course, uh, if you want to elaborate on some of these questions, feel free to do so. But again, this is the rapid fire round. So, Margaret, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So the first question for you is, whose brain would you like to pick? I would like to pick the brains of some of these fabulous mystery writers like Sue Grafton or Michael Conley. 
I would like to pick the brain of different people like Ellie Griffiths or there's this one mystery writer that I really idolize and her name is Tana French. Those are the people whose brains I'd like to pick. Okay, great. The next question is, if you could have witnessed one event in history, what would that be? You know, I think, see, I'm not sure this is real history. (laughs) I would have liked to have visited Atlantis. (laughs) 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 And when I say that, it's like, "Mm," people are going to say, oh, what's she talking about? But yeah, the magical city that collapsed under the sea, and some people believe it existed, and some people don't. I'd like to believe it existed, and I would have loved to have visited it. Yeah, fair enough. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The next question for you is, so what color describes you best? I'd have to say purple. Mm. Um, People people that know me or who have described me um, feel that there's that quality to me. Um, I think that it's it's a color that my mother used to dress me in when I was young. And I think that that purple signifies to me that kind of um, playful um, characteristic where you want to kind of put yourself out there a little bit. And yet within me, because I'm basically a pretty much an introvert and, and a person who withdraws, I think that that color purple signifies for me the mixed messages that I have in my careers and and uh, my life. Mm. What uh, the next question is? What one thing do you do every single day or week that uh, to maintain your sanity? The thing that helps me the most is taking a morning walk. And there are some time I like to do that outside rather than inside. And living in Colorado, it's sometimes hard to do that when there's a blizzard or a storm or whatever. Um, treadmill walking is okay, but it doesn't have the same calming uh, effect that being outside does. So um, as I get older, I may have to live for a di- uh, look for a different place to live because this <laughs> snow time walking is just not for me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next question is, and this is something that uh, I know that you like living on a ranch. So my next question to you is, what animal's daily existence best aligns with your professional day? Hmm. That kind of, that's a tough one. Um, I'm going to say a dog um, primarily because I have a dog. I have a, 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 a house dog, dog in the house. We have a couple of dogs that live outside too. And I observe their behavior constantly. I really enjoy trying to translate dog's behavior into my novels and Robo's character. And so I would have to say a dog. Mm. And then the next question is the five most important things in life, according to you. The five most important things in life. People. um, And that would include family and friends. So I'll count those as two. Um, I think livelihood is important. Livelihood's not only important to earn money, but it's important to fill yourself up and to teach you things and to gain from those experiences. So friends, family, livelihood, um, home, I think that home can be your nest or your haven, the place that you escape from the world. And it can be your little spot on earth where you can relax. And I think it's important for you to put those things in your home that you really enjoy. 
so that you can have that nice little place to relax and enjoy. And the fifth one would probably be communication. Um, Being able to communicate with others, being able to really listen and to listen deeply to what they're saying, not just their words, but some of the underlying emotion behind it. And then to be able to express yourself in a neutral way, especially when you're in an area of controversy or conflict, but to be able to express yourself in a way that you can also be heard. Oh, I like that. Those are beautiful, wonderful uh, nuggets right there. And then uh, the next question, and this is uh, the final question within the rapid fire round, and that is, if you could have any message of your choice on a billboard, what would that be? I think I'd have to go back to something we talked about earlier, and that's believe in yourself. I think that would be the message that I'd like people to see as they drive to work each day. Mm, That's beautiful. And now moving on to our final uh, section, this is the wrap up round and I just got last three questions for you. So the first one I have for you is what is your current personal business passion project that you're working on and you're looking forward to in the next uh, six months to a year? Well, like you mentioned earlier, we released Hunting Hour just uh, recently. We released it in August, and I am busy at work uh, and have been since last March on book four in the series. Book four has a working title of Burning Ridge. I hope we keep that title. I really like it. I didn't come up with it. Some people at Crooked Lane came up with that title. It's the first time I've written a book to match a title, and I really have enjoyed writing this book. That book will come out around August of 2018. I don't know for sure yet what its release date will be. So that's my current project. Nice. And then I will include... All of that information in our show notes so the audience can find out more about it. Again, uh, the three books uh, Margaret's written, uh, the first one is Killing Trail, the second one is Stalking Ground, and the third one is Hunting Hour, and all those will be included and can be accessed on the show notes uh, as part of this episode. Uh, The next question is, the three things you're grateful for in life today, Margaret? I'm grateful for a sense of security in life and I'm grateful for the um, support of family friends and professional colleagues Um, that type of support really carries you through the tough times so I'm very grateful for that great I love that and I guess I'm grateful for my health Mm. that's kind of a stock answer But it's (laughs) the older we get, the more we realize that we can't take that one for granted. Yes, indeed. Health is wealth. And Mm -hmm. I want to acknowledge you, Margaret, for a couple of things here. One, for really uh, being a role model for what it means to believe in yourself and to take those actions and to really uh, uh, stand up for your uh, dreams and desires of uh, becoming a speech pathologist as a young kid and then pursuing that education and then really uh, when life dished out challenges to really take it head on and then starting your own practice and then eventually pursuing your calling and uh, as a writer and uh, coming and having the due diligence of writing it every year to come up with these wonderful books uh, that people love so much. So, uh, and again, for that, words of wisdom about uh, believe in yourself. I mean, what a great uh, message uh, to share with our audience here. I think uh, it's going to be really uh, wonderfully uh, uh, accepted by everyone who's listening to this podcast because it's such an important message. And again, uh, one final question, uh, Margaret, that's, uh, that's how we wrap up all our interviews, and that is, why do you think people should listen to the wisdom of friends? In looking at the guests that you have during your seasons, I'm just struck by 
so many different people from different walks of life and their wonderful stories. And I feel like this, this show offers so many different ways to look at challenges in life and the way people have overcome those challenges and turn some of those challenges into opportunities. So I believe that people could really benefit from listening to the stories of other folks. Great. Thank you so much again. Uh, appreciate uh, you taking the time to be on this program, Margaret, and I valued our conversation. And really, again, thank you for your uh, time and candid answers. And for those of us who are listening, with that, we'll wrap it up. And if you like what you heard, please share. Don't be shy. Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Cal Aras. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, theglobalcontribution.com. To your friends and colleagues, be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous episodes. This has been a Seven Symphonies production. Join us next time for another edition of the Wisdom of Friends.